Good morning. Let's bow in prayer. Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of the ages. Who shall not fear and glorify thy name, O Lord? For thou alone art holy. All nations shall come and worship thee, for thy judgments have been revealed. Lord, we come this morning. We are awed and grateful for your marvelous love, for your grace, for your um, just bountiful blessings to our lives. We are so grateful for them. We are grateful for this church. I pray that all that is said and done here today will honor and glorify you and that we'll go home better people because of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would also like to make some announcements. I'll just throw it down. It's fine. Welcome to First Baptist Church Pasadena, all all of you. Uh, we hope you come today with expectant hearts, that you take something home that you can actually use this week in your busy, uh, sometimes overwhelming lives. Please pull the yellow card from your worship folder. That is your communication card. We ask that you complete this card. When the offering is passed, you put it in there. This is your communication with the church staff. Any praises, prayers, whatever you want to say, we'd love to hear it. Thank you for that. I would also like to give a fabulous announcement this morning. We have a new church member. He is uh, Joseph Paul Yung Ming Ming Sito. He was born Thursday... Wednesday, Wednesday, 5 pounds, 11 ounces to Ted and Joey. He is absolutely just about the cutest thing I have ever seen. I have fabulous looking grandchildren, but this is a very cute baby. Got to hold him yesterday, so uh, please uh, give your warm wishes to Ted and Joey uh, as we leave today. On Wednesday, July 25th in the evening, please join us for our prayer gathering. If you are coming to that, please put yes prayer on your uh, communication card and we'll know that you're coming and our people who are cooking will know how much to make and I believe that is all of our announcements for today let's stand and greet one another and then be on about our baptism good morning aren't baptisms fun they're just the best I just love Sundays when we baptize and uh Thanks to our youth leaders, Cisco and Becky, they've been uh, preparing the students and uh, working with them in class and just back from uh, camp as well. So good to be in the house of the Lord. A rich man was asked one time, how much is enough? And his answer reportedly was, just a little more. Now, if I were asking you, let's pretend, I know none of you would be doing this or need to, but let's pretend for a moment. You can pretend, right? Let's pretend you need to lose weight. And you were losing weight, and somebody said, well, how's it going? How much do you need to lose? And you'd say, just a little more, right? Or let's say we were talking about your job and how much money you made and whether or not you were satisfied with your wages. And somebody said, well, you know, are you making enough? And you'd say, no, I'd like to make just a little more. Just a little more would solve so many problems in life, wouldn't it? In fact, I, I should confess the, about pastors. You know, if I'm sitting with a bunch of pastors, they're going to they're ask me a question. What's the question? 
How many were in church on Sunday? And I'm going to tell them, try to tell them truthfully. And uh, they'll say, well, what, what, do you, what would you really like? You know what I'd really like? Just a little more. In fact, I'm a bad sinner. I'd like a lot more. I was talking to Sean and I was talking to Ashley and I said, now wouldn't it be great if we went out into the, into the uh, congregation? Because when you're standing up there, it's amazing how, you know, you're high and lifted up and looking down on everybody. It's kind of cool. And I said, wouldn't it be great if the balcony was filled with people? See, I want a lot more. But that's my problem. And then when uh, the, we get the monthly reports of the financial situation of the church and somebody say, well, how are you doing? Uh, how's it looking? And I'd say, what? Well, just a little more would be just a little better. You, you know how it goes, right? Now, Joyce and I were um, back in Williamsburg, Virginia, a few weeks ago. And there's a section of downtown Williamsburg. It's called Colonial Williamsburg. And it's all fixed up like it was hundreds of years ago. And so these houses are the same, and it's quite a place. And we were there to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the establishing of Jamestown, which is just down the road. Well, while we were there, we went into, uh, I think it's called an apothecary. Was that an apothecary, Joyce? They're talking on the front row here. Was that an apothecary? We didn't see the queen. Um, anyhow, we went into a store where they sell medicine. You know, today you'd call it Rite Aid, a pharmacy. But back in the day, it was called an apothecary. And they had all these wooden drawers that you could pull out, and they had herbs and medicines and whatever you needed. And then on the counter, they also had the instruments that a dentist or doctor would use back then. So if you were ill, you might go to see the dentist or the doctor. And this young lady who was all dressed up in a costume was telling us about doctors back in the day, this couple hundred years ago. And they had a saw there about this long. It intrigued me. What do you think that was for? Amputations. So we got to talking about that. And uh, she said, well, I said, how did they do it? She said, well, you got a bunch of your best friends around, and they pinned you down, and the doctor operated. And I said, well, what did they give you? And she said, mostly nothing. You know, sometimes you get a shot of whiskey. That's in the movies. But she said, most of the time, they had nothing. You were just fully awake, and they would cut off your limb. Can you imagine? And she said, the mark of a good doctor was speed. I'd agree. And she told us, I've forgotten now, but she said, I, th- I think she said three minutes. A good doctor could get your limb off in just a very few minutes. And that you appreciated that. You don't want some guy who's taking a half an hour and talking to people, you know, and going on and on. Now, why am I telling this story? Well, I think sometimes to be, to be unsatisfied or dissatisfied can be a good thing. I'm glad doctors were not satisfied with those methods of surgery, right? It's a good thing we've made progress. And so it is true that when you're not satisfied, that can push you to do better. It can push us to different ways. So there is value in not being satisfied. But there's also not being satisfied can be a real problem. It can rob you of the joy of life. Not being satisfied can... Uh, can cause you to live your whole life, and at the end you say, well, you know, this is, this is nuts. I've never been quite satisfied. Many children have grown up in homes where the parents were so demanding, you know, the kid comes home with three A's, a B, and a C, and what does the parent talk about? Hey, you're doing great in school, you know. Why, do, why can't we rejoice in the A's and forget about the C's, you know? But parents are never satisfied, and you can really defeat your children sometimes in that way. Now, this morning we are... Looking at the book of Colossians, we started a new series, and I'm calling this summer series, Believe Right, Do Right. Would you say that with me? Believe Right, Do Right. And we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians. We went through the book of Philippians. Colossians is right next door. It's on page 200, if you'd like to look in your Bible. 
And uh, one of the things that Paul was writing about as he wrote this letter is that apparently there was a lot of dissatisfaction in the congregation. Now, Paul is writing to people he knows, but he doesn't know them as well as he knew the people in, in Philippians, so it's not as intimate a book. And one of the challenges you have as you read this letter, Colossians, is that you're not exactly sure what the problem is Paul's talking about. But whatever it is, it's something to do with who is Jesus and are you, is Jesus en- enough or do you need more than Jesus? And that's my way of phrasing this. Paul's writing to these people who are struggling and he's trying to encourage them. And in chapter 1, Paul puts together, and as it's already been said, it may be he's borrowing from a Christian hymn, but Paul puts together this statement or song about Christ. And this morning, rather than talking so much about the doing end of things, we all often talk about doing in church, we're going to talk more about the believing. And I want to ask you, and of course it's a, it's a personal question. I can answer for Steve, but that's about it. But I want to ask you, how big is your Jesus? What do you really believe about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus was? What did he do? How big is your Jesus? And I want to Keep that question in front of you as we look at Paul and these few verses here that we've just read together, this hymn about Christ, okay? So that's where we're going. Now, it would be really helpful for you to have uh, that little outline in front of you. I had one, and I've already lost it. Well, I'll have to quit because I don't have a sermon now. No. Here we go. Um... So I want to make four statements about Jesus that summarize what Paul's talking about here. And the first statement is this. As Paul writes to them, Paul makes the statement, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now that's big, isn't it? That's real big. Think with me for a moment to the Christian year. We celebrate Christmas. And we love the little story of Jesus born in the babe in the manger. It's very uh, romantic, nostalgic. Everybody loves Christmas. And you can go through the life of Jesus, and a lot of people today would say Jesus was a good teacher. I, I stick to some of his teachings. Um, he had told great stories. He did miracles. Folks would even say, I believe in the miracles. So there's a lot of information out there about Jesus. And you move through the life of Jesus, we come to Good Friday, and then we come to Easter, and Jesus is resurrected. The question kind of is, how far down the road will you go with Jesus or in thinking about Jesus? How big is your Jesus? Good teacher? Okay. Uh, A son of God? Okay. But but just how big is he really? Now, I want you to look at Colossians 1.15. As Paul writes here, he says this about Jesus. The pronouns he and him throughout this passage refer to Christ. He, or Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you enjoy underlining things, underline the word image. I want to stick with that for a moment. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word is icon. If we were in a Greek Orthodox church today, and I have some friends who are Greek Orthodox, you would see icons. They would be pictures of saints and of Jesus and of holy scenes, and they're flat images. And they're flat because the church did not want anybody to think these are real and we're going to worship them. They're simply a picture to link us to a story that was told. Now, if you look around here, there's sort of like icons in this church, Baptist though it is. What do you see before you try to look out? Stained glass windows. 
And it would be delightful someday just to spend the day, we could spend a whole year at it, I think, but to go around and look at each scene in the glass and say, what is this about? Because each one is a biblical story. And it would link us or remind us of that event that we read about in Scripture. Now, nobody would say that is the event, just like when you're in a Greek Orthodox church and you see an icon of Jesus. Nobody says that's Jesus. It's just a link to help us think about Jesus. Now, in the, back in the day, in the real day, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, how many folks do you think could read the letter to the Colossians? 50%? 10%? 5%? It's not high, folks. It's not 50. I don't know what it is, but it's a very small percent. And so the letter would be read to them. Folks were into memory back then. And as the church began to grow and formalize, oftentimes artwork was a way, just like the writing of something, artwork was a way to catch the idea there. We paint a scene, and it reminds us of that story. Now, as Paul writes this letter, he says Christ, or Jesus, is the exact image of God. He's the expression of God. If you were up in the heavens at the holy throne, at the heavenly council, and you were trying to figure out well, how are we going to communicate God? What the God had decided was we will communicate God through the birth of a person we're going to call Jesus. He's the expression, the image of God. And so Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, he also writes in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know as Paul wrote about Jesus and as the New Testament talks about Jesus, they believe Jesus actually was God. Look at this next verse. In fact, I'll read it to you. I'm not sure if it comes up. Uh, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 1, 18. As the church began to grow and form, one of the first statements that Christians decided to write about what we believe, that is a statement outside the New Testament, it's called the Nicene Creed. In that creed, here's what the church said about the belief in Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of gods. So the first statement that I think comes out of this passage is, Jesus is God. Now, I don't know how big your God is, but for, or how big your Jesus is, but for Paul, Jesus is God. Now look, let's look at statement number two. Statement number two is this, Jesus is creator of all. Jesus is creator of all. We read this a moment ago, but let's read this scripture again, because it's, it's amazing what it says. Would you read with me? For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. That's big, isn't it? That's big. Let me be very clear. It's not as though way back before creation, way back before space, way back before time, there's God, and then creation comes and time and space and all this, and somewhere in that uh, linear thinking, Jesus gets plugged in. That's not the way to think about Jesus, not according to this passage. It's very important to notice the prepositions here. 
Let me read this verse again, and rather than saying he, I'll put in the name Jesus, because that is, I think we all agree, who Paul is talking about. So it's a fair move. Jesus, for in Jesus all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Now, I mentioned the prepositions because uh, that's the key here. Paul wants the church to be crystal clear about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And so he says that the creation of the sun, the moon, the stars come down to planet Earth, creation of planet Earth, creation of the plants and the people. Creation of you is all for, in, through, and by Jesus. Wow, that's big. And so according to this scripture, Jesus is creator of all. all, Anything you can think about, Jesus made it. That's big, isn't it? So when you read in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was Jesus there? Not a trick question. And what you believe will determine whether you're in the church as a normal believer, an orthodox believer, or outside the church as a heretic. So Jesus is creator of all. In fact, in the very next verse, he even expands it to saying, in him all things hold together. Now, what does that mean? I would not be wrong if I said to you, to paraphrase this, Jesus is the glue of creation. When we talk about creation, and it's fun to talk to a scientist or an astronomer or somebody that you know, can kind of get you out and thinking about how big this place is. I mean, it's unbelievable. When you think, what holds it together? Why don't, when the world's spinning like this, why don't we just go flying off into space? Why doesn't it just explode or implode or melt down or something? You know, what holds it together? Well, according to Paul, in this scripture, in Jesus, all things hold together. This is the perfect tense. Jesus is constantly holding it together. Wow. That's pretty big, isn't it? So, Jesus is God, Jesus is creator of all, and then the fourth statement is this, Jesus is first, F-I-R-S-T, first. Listen as I read two scriptures. For he is, Jesus is, the firstborn of all creation, and then later in the same passage, verse 18, he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that in, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, when you read the word firstborn, that's a little bit troublesome. Because at first blush, you would think, well, Paul is saying Jesus was born, just like you and me. And we think of the story of Mary and Joseph. And in that sense, he was born. But if you think about that, then you think, well, Jesus was created. And that's where we get into trouble. And so I want to give you three statements about what is really being talked about here. Because when he says he's firstborn, you can think about the manger if you'd like to. But don't think about the fact, well, then Jesus had a beginning because that would be heresy. Jesus, according to this passage, did not have a beginning. As a man, he had a beginning. But as the third member of the Trinity or the the second member of the Trinity as the Son of God, he did not have a beginning. So uh, let's look at that again. I want to make three statements. And if you'd like to fill in the blanks, here's the time to do it on the top of the back, back page. First of all, Jesus is first does not mean he was created. Because he is creator, therefore he could not be created. Secondly, Jesus is first, meaning he's the most important. He's preeminent. 
And here you could think about the, the right of the firstborn son. And uh, don't get mad, ladies. It was the right of the firstborn son back in the day. The, the firstborn male son had all these privileges, all this status. He was first. That's a big deal. And in that sense, as it goes on, and we're not dealing with this today, but Jesus is the head of the church. He's the firstborn. So he has status. He has preeminence. He's first. And then another way, which I find very easy to understand, he's the firstborn, and the Scripture says this, he's the firstborn from the dead. Now let me unpack that. Do you remember the story in John 11 of, of Lazarus? And he died. And Jesus dilly-dallied around and went late, and so he couldn't heal Lazarus. He died. When Jesus was there talking to the sister, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And she said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but so what? You know, that's way off in the future. In that passage, I always think Mar- the, he was just kind of being, you know, played off. And Jesus said, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then what did Jesus do to prove his point? He called back Lazarus from the dead. you remember? Lazarus was alive. But question, was Lazarus really alive, never to die again? No. Unfortunately, I don't know whether Lazarus was happy about coming back or not. But he was to die again. And so he wasn't really resurrected in the real sense of the word. Who's ever been res- resurrected? Nobody. Who ever came back from the dead? Well, at Easter time, God's power came into that corpse called Jesus, and he came back from the dead. And Paul now says he's the firstborn from the dead. And so Jesus is first in the sense of saying, there is life after death. I've conquered death, hell, and the grave. I'm alive. I'm the firstborn from the dead. Never to die again, to have this new body. This new creation. And so, Jesus is first. And then one final comment. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator of all. Jesus is first. And Jesus is peacemaker. I want to look at the end of this passage. Jesus is peacemaker. Let's read this together. uh, Verse 20. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. Now, I only want to deal with two words here, and if you could underline the word reconcile and underline the word peace. I want to think about those. Underline the word reconcile and peace. There is a problem in our world. There is a problem in our nation. There is a problem in our state. There is a problem in Los Angeles. There's a problem in Pasadena. There's even a problem, I'm sorry to say it, in First Baptist Church. Big problem. In fact, you've got a problem. Right? What's it called? The Bible calls it sin. It's the sin problem. It's the brokenness of us, of all of us. And here in this passage, since we're thinking big this morning, Paul's not saying, well, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. He's not saying to humanity, you know, you're all sinners, you all need to get saved. He's saying something much bigger than that. He's saying this whole thing is broken. Now, do I have to illustrate that this morning? I mean, do you understand how broken things are? I think we all understand how broken the world is. And hopefully, pride's not blocking you from understanding how broken you are as a person. So as Paul writes, think about that. He says, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Now, in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this, the message, let me read the way he puts it. All the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, 
people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed. (laughs) I like that. Someday we're going to get fixed. I think that's good. They get properly fixed together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. I like that. That's a great image of the harmony that's going to come someday because of the blood of the cross and God's work at reconciling, at putting the world back together, at fixing the broken world through the offering of Christ on the cross. That's big. That's big. Somehow, some way, in the mystery of God, God is working toward peace in all of creation as well as in our lives. So, Jesus is peacemaker. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator of all. Jesus is first. Now, this morning, I started with the question, what's enough? And as Paul is writing to this group of people, and we're going to deal with this more fully in later chapters, but he's writing to them because they're a little bit confused and they're wondering, well, I've got Jesus, but maybe there's more. Maybe there's an experience out here, some ecstatic spiritual experience I haven't had, and I need it. Or maybe, I know I've got the Bible and I've got the letters and all that, but maybe there's another book and I need that book. Maybe I need, and it just goes on and on. I was thinking of a great one, see if this will fly. Uh, maybe I need more rules. I was thinking we could start down the road of Steve's stipulations. <laughs> You're shaking your head no. I don't think it'd fly. You know, do we need more? And Paul's trying to say, hey, we've got a big Jesus, and Jesus is enough. How big is your Jesus? As I conclude this morning, I, I decided, well, I, frankly, I was having a tough time. How do I finish this? So I just wrote this down for Steve, and I'm going to share it with all of us now. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is creator, if Jesus is first, if Jesus is peacemaker, then there's hope. Several times in this chapter, the word hope has come up. If Jesus is these, who he says he is, who Paul says he is, if he's that person, there's hope. You can have hope, Steve, because Jesus is recreating creation. Looking down the road, the apostle said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's hope. You can have hope because Jesus has overcome death, hell, and the grave. Death is not the end. It's not final. You can have hope because Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Thank you. You can have hope because Jesus is the giver of hope to the hopeless. You can have hope because Jesus is the mender of broken marriages and broken things. You can have hope because Jesus is the healer of broken hearts. You can have hope because Jesus gives comfort to the comfortless. Jesus gives light to those who are in darkness. Jesus gives guidance to those who have lost their way. There is hope because Jesus is big enough to do these things. So, I believe... As Jesus is God and creator of all that is and is working towards reconciliation and peace in our world, I can have hope. Do you have hope? How big is your Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, as we bow this morning... um, we first of all acknowledge we get awfully caught up in our own lives. They're, they're important. We get awfully caught up in our own dissatisfactions. 
And sometimes we fail to take a deep breath, to quiet our hearts, to look around, to think big. Lord, we thank you this morning for this little letter that the Spirit of God impressed Paul to write to a church like ours many years ago. And in one sense, to say Jesus is enough. You have found the answer to life. He's sufficient. And Lord, as we think about Jesus, we confess we have thought too small. Enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our minds. God, I know there are also men and women here today who who aren't certain what they believe about Jesus. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you might impress upon their hearts to take that leap of faith and trust Jesus with everything, fully. Thank you for Sean's commitment to trusting you and Ashley's testimony before us today that she has trusted Jesus. And we pray as we go forth, Lord, that you would protect us from the influences of the world that take us away from understanding and following Jesus, Lord of all. Amen.